What's up, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally, and all of our programming is brought to you by True Nutrition. Go to truenutrition.com and use our code THINK for high-quality, third-party tested supplements. Lots of great flavors you can choose from, basically every protein powder under the sun. Uh, every carb you can think of from cheap carbo load that's like $20 for 60, 25-gram servings, all the way up to the best highly branched cyclic dextrin that you can get your hands on. Once again, use our code think supplement source.ca for our Canadians. Uh, great deals that change week to week, so check them out. And of course, byobbcoach.com. You can get Scott's book there, Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach, or do like I did. You can head over to Amazon and get yourself the hardcover. This is a great book. It'll take you all the way through your off season, your contest prep, your peak week everything else in planning your next season. So check that out, byobbcoach.com. Of course, go to Scott for um, consultations. You can reach out to him on his website. Reach out to me, mcdailydietsatgmail.com. What's up, Scott? We're going to talk about volume today, right? Let me say one thing. First yeah. of all, no post notes do not come with the book. I saw your post note in there, so that's good. That oh. means you're reading it. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> it's I actually finally got a little. It's and not a post-it I, note. It is something a, bookmark. It is a $5 Blasian bill. How about that? Ooh, okay. Wow, that's that's a special bookmark. That's pretty cool, actually. Um, now I finally got a link to purchase directly from the um, the uh, I'm the publisher technically from the printer, and it's oh. so eighty five dollars. So I could I could drop the price down. The, oh. set, the problem is like the format of the description of the book. It looks terrible because instead of having spaces, it has non breaking space NBSP or whatever, um, all throughout the thing. So you know, it's just trash. It looks terrible. Uh, but anyway, Wait, I think the book awesome. itself does the, the description is, of the book. You go to that link, the description. Okay. But not the book. No, not no, no, the book. no, 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 no. Gotcha. It's a hardcover. It's the same hardcover. It's coming directly from the printers who provide the book for Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Okay. So it's just, you're cutting out the middleman. If you want then send me the link and I'll post that in the description of the show. Okay. We can, it's also on my, on my link tree. On oh, my perfect. Instagram. I think I already put up. I just didn't like say, Hey, here it is. Cause I look at it and like, it's like it's so how like every time you see a space or like all throughout you've got all those those five characters like yeah, and I understand I understand it's like so I'm I'm like anyway so it looks kind of crappy but it's available for people so and it, I didn't do it in time for Christmas I didn't do it in time for Black Friday well it's that's just all right yeah I'm not that's not how I work that'll be a, a late gift so let's dive into this thing man I know you got a bunch of slides here that you sent me over yeah what are what are we talking about first of all something to do with volume I know that much. I put an Instagram post up uh, three, four days ago, and all I did is actually I took several studies. I can't remember exactly how many. Um, all of looking at quad or vastus lateralis changes in quad and vastus lateralis muscle size, so either cross-sectional area or thickness um, that have been published since I think the earliest was 1997, and this this latest study Ennis et al that came out the 52 set study that everyone's just talking about. Um, and I put those all in one plot. And actually, you can pull that up right now if you want. It's the one that's got multiple colors. I think it's the first thing I sent you. Is it this one? That's the one. Yeah. So, so th this basically, I just these are just averages. I I put this plot together myself from looking at all the studies. And the interesting thing is, you see kind of a dose response pretty much if you're just looking at the averages. Um, and what I have done next to each of those, and people maybe couldn't see this if they're on their phone, maybe they did a screenshot and then they zoomed in on it, but we do see this sort of from left to right increased uh, 
muscle growth response, the higher the volume you see. But it's not as uniform as people make it out to be. And the most important thing I think that is going missed, and I, <laughs> I can see Lyle McDonald put up a quick little little rant because he's just kind of disgusted by this. Um, I hope he actually digs in it in on it because he does a really nice job with that. Um, intentionally caustic as he is many times. <laughs> uh, but this NS study, which is the yellow one on the bottom right, um, that's the percent increases in vascular lateralis thickness over their 12-week study. Okay. And um, in these thoughts are in that Instagram post, and I have some other ones that are there too. Um, so what I, there's a number of things I wanted to point out, but one of the things I think that's being missed on that study is one, that they're av- they work their way up from 22 uh, sets at the beginning of this 12-week period. They're a really nice job of, of giving people a deload previous and working them into the training period. Um, so they did a really nice job. I really like the study design. And what they did in the groups, they had three groups. One stayed at 22 sets, so that's the leftmost plot, leftmost dot. You can't really see it because the lines are right over it. Um, the next one increased by four sets every two weeks over the 12-week period. And the other group increased by six sets every two weeks. So they ended up between like 22 sets, staying at that volume, to 37, 38. I actually, people say 37. Sometimes people say 38 when I kind of did the, the set-by-set progression to get my own average. And it came up like 37.8 or something. So, okay. But it wasn't 52 sets from the get-go. It was more like 37 or 38 on average but they worked their way up and they did two reps in reserve on all exercises for all sets until the last set that they, they, then they trained to failure. Um, and they, you see this curve. If you just look at these numbers, the averages, it's like, okay, that looks good. Important point here is that if you read and, um, this is one of the, one of the figures I sent you, I wish I could help you fish it out. I That's can't remember. Uh, it's going to say NS et al on it, and it's going to be a kind of a block of text with some highlighted yellow seconds. Not oh, that yellows. one. Okay, I see it. This one. All right. Yeah. This one? That's the one. Yeah. All and that's right. just, this is just so we can read it. it says there were no significant group by time interactions um, in terms of vastus lateral cross sectional area. The same was true for the thickness. Um, no group by time interactions. So, what that means is. They look at the different groups, and if one group changed differently over the course of time, so pre versus post, then there's an interaction. Somebody is doing something from the beginning to the start differently than the other. I'm so sorry, one- Scott. I got to back you up, though, man. Can I go back to this? Because before you go further, if I'm lost, I feel like some other people might be lost. Okay. I'm still not sure what we were looking at with this first chart. Okay. Yeah, so I, are, are so these different studies listed along the bottom? All, then? Each of those lines is a different study. Okay. And they've got written next to them what muscle group was studied. Okay. So if you look at the very far left, you'll see the Ostrowski study, 1997. Okay. Um, rectus femoris cross sectional area there. Okay. Right? So that's what they measured. That's the studies Ostrowski. It's, you have to zoom in on the text. Um, they use trained individuals, so team means trained. They trained a failure. Um, and even in that study, uh, they did not see significant differences for strength or size. Those not, it looks like that. That's the kind of the dark blue line. Yeah. On the far left. It looks so like it's go, going way up. It's so, going way up. You're just looking at the averages, right? The problem is we see so much variability that 
when you run the statistics, statistics take in basically the simplest way to think of it. Statistics take in the averages to count, but they also take into the variability in averages. So okay. I didn't depict that there. Otherwise, this would have been just a, a giant mess of lines that would have been very, very much more difficult to read. So how is so, the line going up then if nothing changed? Those are just the averages. So l let's say what that probably means. I'd have to go look at, at the numbers, but that means there's huge standard deviations. So some people in that um, in that leftmost group, so the lowest volume, yeah. which is about five percent, five point one. I don't know the number. It's around five percent. There are yeah. some people who probably got an eight or nine percent increase, and some people got a one or two. Right. Okay. You look at the higher volume, where they're at less than ten sets. I think it was nine sets per week. There were some people like the average is uh, above twelve. So I'm having to squint to make sure I read the right numbers there. But there were some people who probably were at four, and there are some people who probably were at eight, 18. Okay. So it's all over the place. You've got this huge scatter. So the easiest way to sort of think about this is um, imagine you got two people who are playing darts. Yeah. You can put that down if you want. Okay. In case watch it. It doesn't, we can pull it back up. Um, so imagine you got two people playing darts, right? And they're both shooting for the bullseye. Yeah. Um, and you look – at sort of where their darts hit. So they each throw like, you know, a dozen darts, right? And one person, you look at the average distance, of all those darts from the bullseye. And one person is two inches and the other is four inches. You're like, oh, two's better than four. That's right. twice as good, you know, 50% closer or however you want to, however yeah. you want to. But then you look at all the darts and they're both darts are all over the place, right? Okay. Like, one person, like they both have two or three darts that didn't even hit the dart circle, yeah. right? And some of them, like maybe there's a bullseye, just kind of almost coincident. That's where they're shooting for naturally. So the darts are all over the place. So you look at the darts. Let's say you got yellow and blue darts. And you just see this cloud of darts, right? Right. But one has to ha happens to have an average that's closer. So that wouldn't be considered a significant effect. Now let's say let's say you 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 do you throw those darts and You've got one on they're, they're very, very close together. They're really yeah. scattered. You've got, you've got one and they're scattered like this. Let's say we've got five darts, so five fingers. And, and here's the center. One person is like this and the other person is like this. They just yeah. they say the air always in one direction. You would say if this is the midpoint and all their darts are like that, right? This, that's definitely different than this person. If they're overlapped, they've got the same deviation, but they're on top of one another. That's not going to be significantly different. They're both one was one inch and one was one point two inch from the on average. Okay. Right. If, if okay. they're both scattered similarly and one is a half an inch and one is two and a half inches from the center. Yeah. Equal scatter. You're like, well, this person is consistently missing to the left. Right. Very consistently. They're all scattered. They're all pretty close. And this person is consistently very close to the bullseye. So the average matters how close you are to the target, or in this case, how much growth you made on average. But if the scatter is all over the place, then it's like, that's not a consistent effect. I see. And that's what statistics take into effect. Okay. And that's why, and that's the, and that's the I'm glad you brought this up because this is the very issue that seems to be being missed in some discussions that I've heard and been told about of the, of this Ennis et al study is those numbers were better. So now yeah, we can pull the plot back up now. Okay. The, the plot, the first one? Yeah, the first one, yeah. Okay. So that's the yellow curve, right? And if you look at those numbers for vastus lateralis thickness, they also did a cross-sectional area measurement. 
but you see like the left the left is lower and the curve goes from low to high when right. it goes from left to right so more volume gave on average more growth and that's where it's being left right mm-hmm. that's like one inch is better than two inches from the bullseye but the scatter was so huge mm. in that study that there was not a significant effect hmm. and that's that's the text that was that other with the text um the text block this one. that we just pulled up and then you wanted some clarification okay that's the one so okay. what i have in there is like there were no significant time by group interactions that, that's the first thing is like so from the num- amount of growth experienced by the three volume groups that they had did not differ hmm that's just what's it doesn't it did statistically didn't differ hmm. right and the postdoc comparisons so they, they called them a mixed analysis they decided even do what are called postdocs comparisons and look and say well i'm going to just compare each group just to make sure typically the way i was taught if you're doing um repeated measures analysis of variance you wouldn't actually do that you don't really have grounds to do a postdoc analysis if you don't have an interaction but that's you know neither here nor there um but even that didn't show a hmm. gene group and so because there's so much variability so yeah one versus two inches on average but the darts were all over the place they were equally bad equally good um because okay. the scatter was too high so, so it sounds like to me this study was trying to set out what the answer is that probably everybody tuned in for which is how much volume do i need to effectively grow muscle and what the study yeah. is telling us is that it doesn't have any answers this, the study suggests that there is, when you look at it, and the, so the question that's asked is, can we say in general with recreationally trained individuals who undergo this really nice regime, they did a really nice job of setting all this up so they kind of equalized everything. They gave a little okay. washout period, so some people were dropping their volume down, other people's weren't bumping their volume up. They kind of set them all up to be kind of at an equal spot in terms of recovery. Nice. And then one group stayed at 22 and the other group added four sets every two weeks. The other group added six sets. So they ended up at 52 sets at the end, which is a lot lot of sets. Right. So the question is, like, can we say with some level of statistical certainty that having more training volume, increasing your training volume in this way will produce more muscle growth under these circumstances? And I have more to say about that, too. This is very important. This has been mentioned. The other things, And. The numbers, the averages, if you just look at it like that, it's like, well, yeah, look at the plot. Like those numbers look, yeah. it's, a, it's a bigger number. Two is bigger than one. But, but to be statistically honest, and that's exactly what the authors were, they found no difference because the variability was all over the place. Okay. I got gotcha. you. It it's just too much. So it, it's like, is, you know, is John a better dart player than Bob? And it's like, you know, on that day, they he got lucky. Both, <laughs> one inch on average, he kind of beat him on the average, but like no. So what? It, what, what if you ma- imagine those two people playing darts like that, and it's all over the place, right? Yeah. They come in and they play darts every night. Yeah. Right. And they and none of them are like. It's not like John is like, wow, oh, he's really close to the bullseye. His everything's scattered really, really well, closely. Yeah. And Bob's all over the place. They're both kind of all over the place. Yeah, they're both unskilled and, guys that are just going to the, the bar at the end of the night and playing darts, and neither of yeah. them have any skill at all is what this what this comes down to, it sounds what, like. What this, what this suggests, it's actually, the anal- you don't want to push the analogy of the metaphor too far, but what this suggests is that there's so much variability 
in the, yeah. among individuals that we can't say with huh. statistical certainty the way uh. we can with the way that we typically <laughs> judge that and that's with a certain probability level that yes you know there's a really really strong statistical probability that you're going to do better with higher volume under the circumstances of this study so you always have to couch it in that way i see in this study they did basically kind of a specialization routine for the lower body okay they they was these individuals were training their upper body they were requisite so were training everything as a normal person would but they didn't track or document the upper body training they let them do whatever they wanted to okay so, so we don't know i didn't see, maybe i missed this but I, I looked i didn't see it it could have been in that higher group i can imagine when they're getting to like oh shit this week we got 48 sets or 40 46 sets you know whatever it might be man i'm not training upper body at all this yeah past three right yeah i could see just that like google this shit right because i'm yeah. just dying up. I, got, I got absolutely no desire to go in and do whereas the other group they're at 22 sets every time they know what's coming yep right and they and they may have stayed there so we don't know what was happening there yeah so for some people for instance who who maybe this is specialization so if someone's in the situation where their upper body is just tremendous and they can they can maintain with greatly reduced volume um, this might work really, really well to bring their legs up for some individuals. Yeah. For someone yeah. who's not, a lot of people aren't going to do this. It's like, okay, here's what I want you to do for the next 12 weeks is barely train your upper body. Yeah. And you're going to notice this in the mirror. Um, you're going to want to train upper body. Like who doesn't want to have a beach day where you train chest and biceps or whatever. Right. That, but you're going to go in and you're going to just destroy your legs and we're going to progressively store them even more so. Yeah. So, and, and, and now that you're not training upper body and it, it, as a result, then like, I guess what you're saying too, is that all of that recoverability is just going into the one thing that you trained. We had a question last yeah. week on uh, uh, blood, sweat and gear. Somebody said, Hey, mm -hmm. if I were to want to bring my arms up and say for the next four to six weeks, I only trained my arms and not overtrained mm -hmm. them, but, you know, only trained my arms, took off everything else. Would my arms grow faster? I thought that was kind of an interesting experiment. And, of course, my answer was, yeah. well, it depends because I there's very maybe if you're a guy that like you're an absolute pro otherwise, but you don't mm -hmm. have arms then maybe that's the icing on the cake and it might give you some benefit. But otherwise, I still would probably give some some effort to everything. But that's fascinating. So, yeah. And, yeah. and so we're not sure whether that, whether or not people changed their upper body training during this a guy that if i'm doing 52 sets man i'm definitely thinking to myself eh, i'm just gonna coast on upper body for this week yeah yeah and the thing the thing that is is said and we know this too is that the more advanced you are these were relatively these guys they're squatting like about 300 pounds i believe um one rep max so they're they're pretty strong pretty strong individuals yeah is we know that they do a good job of estimating the reps and reserves so they're leaving two in the tank or going to an RP of about eight, so roughly two reps from reserve. And then the last set of each exercise was to failure. Um, but what we, what the thing is that I wish the exercise psychologists would step in and do, and there is another study that we can talk about where um, they didn't find anything in terms of kind of a, a feelings index of like how much pleasure they got from the, the training is when, but we, we, we know this happens in, for instance, endurance exercise, and this is actually a strategy. <laughs> if you know you're going to have to go hard for an hour, Right. You pace yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I call it sandbagging sometimes, <laughs> but 
what we what we have, and this is a matter of external validity. We have we do know that you're good at individuals when you say, okay, we're going to do one set, or we're going to do you know just a few sets. We want to be able to test your ability to gauge your reps in reserve, right? And they can do that in an unfatigued state, right? And in, in those single solitary um, circumstances. But when you put someone in a situation where now they know they're going to be doing more more volume in a given for a lower body in this case in a given uh workout that they've ever done before in their entire life and each time it's getting harder and harder and harder perhaps does that ability to accurate or does that honesty in accurately assessing the reps reserve remain or do they indeed and maybe their fatigue with what they're actually willing to do goes down Right. Because they're just psychologically, we have a central fatigue mechanism. Yeah. Right. So maybe they still do accurately gauge their reps and reserve because they're just not going to train as hard. They're just not going to go to failure in that yeah. same way because they just won't do it. Right. Um, and and it, so there's various ways you can look at this or maybe they, they do. They still they still have the ability when they're 36 sets in to go to failure um, in the same way. But they just hold back. And what I what I wish, and I just this is sort of my this is going to be my, my my dying wish, you know, at some point, is that there's more analysis of the actual training data that, that goes into this, uh. because we're doing reps to failure um, in that last set. So so what happens? Like let's say you've got someone they're doing back squats. Um, I think they did like a six to eight rep range and a ten to twelve on the two different days of training, training twice a week, and they're doing. Let's say they go whatever, 315, 315, and they do like, you know, 11 reps, and then they do 10 reps, and they say, okay, this next one, or maybe the, they do three sets like that with the two reps, and this next one's to failure, and they get five more reps, right? Or what I suspect, because they're under the gun, and we know, we know from other psychological experiments is that when you have an authority figure standing by, your behavior can be affected dramatically. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, this is, this has been seen in, in, in some classic experiments. I felt um, it myself training with like people I looked up to good pros and, you know, stuff yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. Well, I can't remember the name of the studies carried out in New York where they, where they asked people to come in and administer memory tests to individuals. There's a classic name for the study. I can't remember the name, but um, this is just one. There's the Stanford prison experiment, which is related to this. And this is another study where you can find these videos and, People were brought in, um, but they came in to be paid, and they were told their task was to administer these memory tests to individuals on the other side of a, um, a barrier, and they could only talk to them. And so they would they would say a series of words or whatever, and that person would have to recall that back to them, and they became impressively more, dif more difficult. The idea was to see to what extent negative reinforcement either enhanced or diminished recallability, mm -hmm. right? So what they would do then is if they made a mistake, they'd say, well, I got to give you a little bit of a shock, a little electrical Ooh. shock. So they would crank it up to X amount of volts or what have you, and then they'd say, okay, this is the person goes, ooh, okay, you're good to go? Yeah, I'm fine. And, and But there's someone standing there with a clipboard and a, and a, a lab coat saying, well, watching them administer this, right? Just observing the thing, collecting whatever subjective data. And as the person progressively went through this testing regime, Every time the person they were supposedly administering the test to made another mistake, they would crank up the voltage a little bit more. And people, because this authority figure was standing by, this is the general theory behind this, 
they eventually got to voltages or currents, whatever they were doing to increase what's going on, to where people are literally screaming in agony. But they're still, and this is just for a memory recall test. They're still literally torturing these people because it was what they were supposed to do, right? Was there really a person getting shocked? There, no, there was a person. I think there was a person faking that, but no okay. one was actually getting shocked. Yeah, yeah. The, okay. The people administering the test were actually the subject of the study. Right, right. I'm looking to do this now nowadays because you have to tell people what's going on more. So, but in those days, they were they were you know they didn't know it, but they were the actors. And the test was how far will you go when someone's telling you what you're supposed to do, or yeah. to what extent will you conform True. to you know? And this this has all sorts of other ramifications outside this. But the, the thing that's interesting too that I wonder about training with reps in reserve and training to failure is like okay, let's say if you're like. Like I said, you're 36 sets in, you're on your last exercise, you're supposed to be stopping two sets shy of failure, and then your last set goes to failure. If all of a sudden you do like six more reps than you've done the previous set, yeah. well, then it shows that you were, you, were, you were sandbagging on the previous ones, right? Yeah. So what do you do? You make sure your last set looks is a failure set. Yeah. All right? You're, you're going you're gonna to do that. I mean, it would make perfect sense to people for people to do that, right? Absolutely, it um, does. So, so there's some. This is this is this is why this is sort of a soft science, and this is they're doing the best thing they possibly can. This is another study that'd be wonderful to see, is you know, and and can you get people to do that? Right, you have to measure bar velocity, and you have to be be sort of tricky to figure out if they actually are just faking the failure. Like, yeah, uh, oh shit, I'm supposed to fail. Oh, and they act <laughs> like they're failing, right? Yeah. Um, so, so pull up that the colorful plot with the different graphs again. All right. And hey, I do want to make sure we before we end things, I want to make sure we get back to this. So for people watching, there's been a number of comments like this one. Uh, so let's just hold this for now. We'll come back to it. He says, my experience is similar to a few comments above. Low volume training made me strong, but I had gotten beaten up physically and mentally. So know that I'm seeing you guys. We see you. We hear you. And I definitely want to make sure we get to that one. You said there's a, a colorful uh, graph. That first plot showing all the oh. all the studies in one this one? one graph. Oh, not this one. The first one. Pretty one, yeah. The pretty one. They're all pretty. This one. That one's the pretty. That one's the other yeah, more Christmas like. All right. <laughs> oh, so, so we have the 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 orange line in the middle is a study that just came out in 2022. Very very similar, except using less volume. They didn't progressively increase their volume, but they used less volume. You can see that. I think they're like 12 sets or something, 14 sets. No, 12 sets um, in their lowest group. And then 18, I think 24 were the numbers. And in that study as well, that line looks like it's kind of going down from left to right, right? Yeah, yeah. The only but one. But statistically, it was no difference. It was the same thing, really? right? Um, yeah, they're the same thing. They actually found instantly a, an, an effect for strength that seemed to favor the, the 18 rep mat or the 18 set condition so the middle one so their strength line looked different than their size hmm. right so that study also did two reps in reserve in all sets except the last one which they trained a failure and interesting thing is if you look at if you look at just the averages again there's a problems with doing this but if you look at just like that that average uh muscle growth for quad thickness, um, it was about 8% for on the left side, a little bit less than 8. I think it was like 7.7, 7.8. 7 
that was at 12 sets per week. That's not too different from the average of 37, 38 sets per week um, on the yellow plot, which is the NS study that we've been talking about so far today. Yeah. So you're just looking at averages looking at those, and not doing statistical analysis. We have a massive amount of overlap because we've got so much variability. But we're also seeing that on average, you can get roughly equivalent averages in terms of muscle thickness increases doing 12 sets a week versus doing an average of, of three times that. And those were both full body training. Well, the, the, the OB group was doing full body training as well. We don't know what's going on with the, um, with the NS in terms of the rest of the body. Okay. So, so the, the other big point here is to kind of keep this all in context. That gray line that stands really high, that's, that's Brad Schoenfeld's um, study that was, you know, everyone was talking about from 2019, where they're doing 45 sets. Okay. And they found significant uh, increases. They did found, find significant increases for size, muscle size, but not strength, interestingly enough. Yeah. And up there were up close to 12%. Okay, and that, that was that was a, a thickness measurement, not a cross-sectional area, and those were going to be those will give you different different numbers in terms of percentage gains, because we're we're talking about a cross-sectional area like a pi r squared if we're talking about circles versus the thickness, which is more like a diameter measurement. Okay. So you're going to those are going to scale a little bit differently. And we don't need to go into the mathematics for that, but if you look at that upper limit there, that's the the forty-five set per week. The, on average, that was the highest volume we have. The other set, the NS study, they went to 52 sets just for the last two or three weeks, hmm. right? But on average, the average was less than in, in, the, in the Schoenfeld study. But they're up around 12%. If we go way back to 1997 mm-hmm. in the astrology study, we have no significant effect. But we do, we do have a number up there where it's close to 12%. It was like, I think I drew the line a little past the dot, but I was trying to make a cur- nice curvy line. It was like 13%. Hmm. So we've got, if you look at like at, at the upper ranges, like look across the top of the graph, we're seeing numbers that are, that are, are at, the, at the top, those, the blue and the green line mm-hmm. um, that are just about as high as the gray line. So the numbers are all over the place. Mm-hmm. If I just left the dots on there and didn't draw lines between them, we'd have a, we'd have like that, that dartboard with scatters all over the place. Yeah. 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 So one of the things that's also important is, for instance, the green plot, um, the Barcelos. Um, we've talked about this study before. This was the study where they train five, um, five times a week, three times a week, or two times a week. But their chest were doing quad training. So that okay. was a specialization um, regime as well. So the thing that, that I think is important here, one, statistical significance, the question that's being asked there is different necessarily than uh, that needs to be addressed. If you're going to talk about a study showing a greater effect, you just got to look at the statistical significance. We got to we got to stick with the with the way the science is done with statistics. If we're going to try to extrapolate from this study to the general population, what we'd expect if someone did what was done in that study, you just can't say higher numbers you know mean more if the, the stats don't support that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's, I have another, another, this is kind of, this is always, so now we can look at individuals, another uh, picture from, and it's an Ennis et al. And it just shows, it was the first one I think you pulled up. Was it, it just a, shows this one line? Yeah, that's the one. All right. So this, this is, these are these, um, these are the numbers. This is for muscle thickness. So 
this is uh, numbers, and these were um, the the percentage there is are ninety five percent confidence intervals. So you can look at the delta numbers across the top. This is for the twenty two set. The um, whatever it added up to, I can't remember the number. The adding four sets a week, so that was it was like twenty eight or 30, 32, I think, and then the thirty two set per average. I forget what the middle average was. So this is the Venice study that we've been just talking about mainly. And you see those numbers, right? The averages, they go from 3.1 to 5.3 to 8.9. But look, for instance, at the 8.9 plus or minus 8.1%. So that's the 95% confidence intervals, right? So that basically, if we go 8 or 9, 8.9% plus or minus 8.1%, we're, we're, we're basically capturing almost all of the subjects within the range of 0.8% to 17%. So people range in terms of their percent increases. Uh, and, and actually, if you look at the individual data, it's even, it's even wider than that. Between 0.7% and 17%. That's, that's a huge yeah, less, you're saying that's the that's the improvement 70. they made was between point seven to seventeen in muscle thickness. Yeah, so a seventeen okay. fold spread just looking at the ninety five percent confidence intervals. So if we look below that, uh, those numbers on the right, there we're seeing those little lines. People have seen this. Those are the individual data points. Yeah. Okay. And we see some interesting things there. Um, most of them are going slanting upward from left to right. So the pre and the post. Yeah. Two people that went down. Right. So two of those folks actually, I mean, they're just individuals, but from the individual perspective, they, they detrained over that period. Yeah. Poor people. Right? I'd hate to be yeah, that guy. Yeah. And if we look in the other groups, look at the other, at the, the middle and the leftmost plots, yeah. there are a couple and, and there's measurement variability here. So we can't say for sure that they definitely went down because you know, there's the, the measurements aren't absolutely precise with 100% precision, but two of those lines slant downward. Actually, on the left on the left side, I'm seeing more, there's one, three. So that's, there's there's three of them that are going downward. Yeah. Right. So what happened to those guys? You know, maybe like how did they go down? Um. If if this if this training program was working for them, so maybe that wasn't enough for them. That's kind of the idea. Ah. Uh. Detrained, yeah, because they weren't moving enough. Um, so we've got all these individual things, you know, worth considering. There's two people who who potentially overtrained in the upper group, and there's two people or three people who undertrained. Perhaps there's one person in the middle group that one of those bottom lines person went down. Yeah, and, they, and that person was you know one of the smaller smallest individuals in terms of at least muscle thickness there where they measured it. So we've got all this variability. And, and when you look at all those numbers, like some people are going up, some people are going down, and you look at these confidence intervals, this variability, it's no wonder. Look at the, look at the middle group increasing four sets per, per every two weeks. 5.3 plus or minus 4.6. So that's, not, again, the point seven. I'm and not sure. Rank, what is a confidence in, interval? I, don't, I, don't, I didn't understand what that it's, is. It's like we can say with – basically 95% confidence that we're, we're capturing all the 95% of our individuals oh. in between, in between those, those intervals. So if it's 10 plus or minus five, 
that means 95% of people fell between five and 15. Understood. Okay. Five, five each way. Yeah. Sorry to so interrupt. That, I just wanted yeah, to make no sure more. I understood. It's totally okay. You sometimes do standard deviations, confidence intervals are basically, this is, this is like two standard deviations. So it's a nice way of, of just telling you how much variability is. So if, if, for instance, we saw that those numbers, instead of being 3.1 plus or minus 4.4%, 5.3 plus or minus 4.6, and 8.9 plus or minus 8.1%, then that's the interesting thing is they had a good effect size there, but they also had a lot of variability that 8.1% is pretty hard. But if those numbers were 3.1% plus or minus 1.2%, if they all were plus or minus 1.2, 1.3%, then we would have had a powerful statistical effect yeah. because everyone was grouped similarly that would have been grouped really, really closely, just like the dartboard, like they're hitting in the same spot each time. All of those individuals seem to be adapting very, very similarly where they're not scattered all over the place. So we don't have some people losing size and some people gaining and most people gaining size. Everyone seemed there was a, a time effect. So everyone grew on average for this, but some people didn't. Yeah. <laughs> So these poor guys, like they didn't grow. So um, let's, uh, I'm trying to think, let me, let me look real quick because I had some notes, some other things that I put up on my, on my Instagram. Let's see if there's anything worth mentioning here. All right. That and, I want to say. And I um, see everybody's comments here. Um, mm-hmm. I will definitely, we've got a few of them that I've highlighted. So we'll be sure to come right. back with a couple of questions that are related, including yours, Tina. Okay, we've covered we covered pretty much what I want to. There's one other thing. Um, if you could pull up, it says Han H A U N L 2019. Uh, let's see. Is that the last one you sent me? One of the last, maybe the very last one I sent you. Yep, I see this it. Hold on a second. Oh, kind of oh, that's not it. Yep, here it is. Also, I wanted to say uh, we got a super chat here. So thank you very mm-hmm. much. We appreciate that. Sweet. Yes. There's, there's a, a there's a character, but we don't have the. He posted a sticker with it, but we we okay. can't see the sticker here at the yeah. moment. Uh, here's the here it is though, and uh, yeah. thank you very much. So this this Cody Hahn study that everyone talked about for quite a good good while that was um, the first study really to to demonstrate this notion of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. And I don't want to go in the. There's too many details here. They had a lot of data. They really dug in and analyzed this. But here's another thing that's important. This is another another. It's just one of the studies that pops in my head when you like really have to look at the caveats. So people now are just saying sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is is it's a possibility. And and the training regime that was used here was one where they worked with reps in reserve, and they increased volume over the course of in this case a six week training regime. Okay. Right? And what they found, and this is all written on the bottom there, from the the training regime was was. Two, Cody Hahn was the first name was published in 2018. And on average, they found no increase in cross-sectional area from their training. So their training on average was not effective. Right. Okay. But what they, what they found is after from week zero to week three, they took measurements mid mid um, training regime that there was actually a decrease in fiber size. Okay. And then from week three to week six, there was an increase in fiber size. So they spent six weeks, they, they, they lost ground for the first three weeks and they spent yeah. three more weeks back up and they got on average back to the same place. Yeah. Right. And so what this graph is, is from a follow-up study where they wanted to basically examine what happened to those people who grew. So each of those bars 
in that uh, um, study shows the change in individuals. They used to look at all the fibers, regardless of fiber type, and just looked at the cross-sectional area and looked at the changes um, pre versus post over the six weeks. So like that leftmost bar that goes from zero to like negative 27, 2800 mm-hmm. microns, gram microns, that is an individual who, who really lost some muscle size. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and then when you read from left to right, they just, just a scatter plot, basically. Um, those are each of those bars represent individuals, pairs of muscle biopsies, pre versus post in the subjects. And as those bars, you know, that are negative, that are below, that are below the, uh, the zero line, as those get closer, that means they, those are individuals who came back basically to where their, their pre-training fiber cross-section area was. Yeah. And then on the other side, we have individuals, those are the open bars on the right that were above the zero line. So those were positive increases in fiber cross-sectional area. So, and you can see there's a dotted box on there and it says included analysis, right? So I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I never sort of pointed this out because I think it's really important caveat to this study. This is the study then where they, they demonstrated that this notion of, of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy as opposed to um, hyperplasia of the of the myofibril, so myofibular hyper, hyper, hypertrophy. Different we did a hyper- whole we did a whole episode about sarcoplasmic hypertrophy in the past. I should yeah. get that link. I'll put it in the description after okay. we're done recording in case anybody yeah. needs to understand that because that was fascinating. So yeah, so I'll probably talk about this. So this is important. Important to note here is so what they did was demonstrated in those individuals who who had a and we could go further in because they had some DEXA measurements that suggested the increase in lean body mass over the course of this training for everyone. Yeah. But the five measurements did not indicate that. So there's some weird weird things going on there that are that are that are difficult to sort of um, uh, reconcile, at least in my head to some degree, but. What's important to note is that they took a, a training regime that on average was not effective. Hmm. It's not one that, you know, you could say, you know, give this to 10 people and, and they're all going to, you'd expect that most of them are going to grow from it because in this case, on average, they didn't grow from it. Half yeah. of them didn't and half of them did. Right. Yeah. And then what they did was look at those who did grow and they included those in their analysis for sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Okay. And that's that's the big the big study so far um, that I'm aware of, at least documenting this notion of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Hmm. But it comes from a study and from a training regime that was not effective on average. So someone might go and say, I'm going to start training that way because I want to you know, make this a sarcoplasmic hypertrophy specialization period. And they might end up on the left side of that plot <laughs> if they were, yeah. if they were on that in that study group. Um, so that's very important. So you can you can pull that down if, if you if you want. But that's. It's important to, to look at the studies, look at the statistical analysis, look at where the data came from, and they're doing it so much. It's so much nice, so so wonderful to see that nowadays we're seeing those individual plots where you can see the, the one individual. So that's the answer that's that's as much relevant um, to it's more relevant to people who are trying to use this research and apply it. If we don't see statistical significance in the research, then that does not bode well for you getting an effect for something on a personal basis because on average people don't that doesn't mean you can't but if you do see a statistical effect then that's even that's an even better better thing and there's 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 you know other things to consider for instance if they did measurements during the course of the study <laughs> like this one if you did that for three weeks 
you would see loss of fiber size, right? Yeah. You stop that few weeks, right? Yeah. Which many might have, right? So I know what would it look like then if, if they'd taken those, if they measured sarcoplasm hypertrophy between zero and three weeks? Yeah. They may have gotten a totally different, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have had hardly any of them, anyone who had hypertrophy. Because on average, I don't look at the standard deviation, but on average, everyone lost size in okay. both fiber and on average. So time is something that we can't, we can't know about in these studies. So when these studies go on for 12 weeks, we don't necessarily know what happened at six weeks or at nine weeks. And that can be problematic. I bring that up in the, um, that's one of the other plots I have in the, um, in the Instagram post showing some individuals losing size at three weeks and then um, coming back and gaining size thereafter, or some people gaining size for three weeks and losing size for the next three weeks. Yeah. So it can be that you've got a temporal aspect to this and we're missing out on what's happening between zero and 12 weeks or zero and eight weeks. It could be that an eight week regime carried out to 12 weeks is not going to be effective because those last four weeks you backslide. Mm, yeah. It could be that great for four weeks or six weeks. So we don't have that. And unfortunately I would, this is where I would like to see individual data points for strength, right? Or, or not strength, but training, what's happening in training for these individuals, right? Are the, the individuals that are getting the best training adaptations and moving, are those the ones that are growing the best? One rep max is a different story than what you're necessarily using in the gym because you're not training for one rep maxes. For sure. Unless you're doing those repeatedly. You can get just, you can just do repeated one rep maxes and do no training. You can see the equivalent ch changes in one rep maxes if, as you see when you're training for hmm. just doing training because you're just practicing the one rep max test. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of neurological component there. So I think that's my, that's my insight into this. This is good. And, yeah. And you sparked a bunch oh, no. of questions too. We, we yeah. got one that just came up and also a super chat. Thank you very much, bad coyote. He's got a question here. Uh, he says, wouldn't more volume equal to more increased duration of blood flow, uh, thus allowing more nutrient uptake to aid in recovery and performance overall. So yeah, just leave that up so we don't. Yep. Um, yes, you're getting more blood flow the more you train, um, but you're not, you're not, you, there's going to be some replenishment of glycogen, for instance, between sets. If you got plenty of glucose and you elevate your insulin, let's say with an intra workout, that sort of thing. But the blood, having more blood flow when you're training, you're, you're not creating an overall anabolic um, effect during your training per se. And that blood flow comes very, very quickly down. So hmm. people talk about blood volume training, like was one of the ideas. And that's kind of the idea based on, on getting a pump. So your, your muscles concerns during training itself, during the actual exercise, is figuring out how to meet the energy demands of the exercise. So you're, you're, you're very catabolic. You're consuming energy. You're consuming glycogen. You're oxidizing fats, especially during your rest intervals. There can be some glycogen replenishment, like, like I said, under certain circumstances. But just getting more blood flow, that's, gonna, that's not turning on. That's not going to be what's going to be turning on the protein synthesis thereafter. That's going to be a function of of, and actually more importantly is the protein balance that you have thereafter. That's going to be a function of the stimulus that you put in place, your particular genetics, having the adequate nutrients around, maybe what other hormonal things you may have employed to make that happen. Um, but just more blood flow. I mean, if you want more, if you're like looking for like time under blood flow or increased total increase in blood flow, 
then you could just, you know, get on the knee extension and just do like, you know, you could do knee extensions for, they've done that in some glycogen depletion studies. So you just do like, you could, you could just do cardiovascular training, actually. Hmm. If you want to increase blood flow on average, you probably hmm. do. Your VO2 during like a like really brutal um, interval or a, whatchamacallit, where you're going from exercise to exercise, a circuit training. Okay, yeah. Um, Think about doing it. I can remember what's called circuit training, like old school, where you just go from one exercise to another. Some people do in the gym; they just go and they do every exercise. Yeah. Well, if you do that, like really, really high effort levels, you get to roughly about sixty percent of a VO two max, um, and that's for most people. That's that's probably below their lactate threshold. Hmm. If, you're, if, if you're an untrained person, that might be your lactate threshold. But that's that's so that's oxygen consumption, and that's going to correlate really strongly with blood flow. So you're getting if you want just blood flow, just do cardio. And so blood flow is not the thing that, that we're going to, that we're going to see is, is really important for turning on muscle growth hmm. um, or blood flow you have from the weight training, the more work you're going to have done for sure. But it's the work, the quality of the work and the extent to which that stimulus is right for you. We yeah. talked about growing better from high reps versus low reps. Some people doing better with higher volumes versus lower volumes. So it's matching the stimulus and the nature of the stimulus to your own genetics and then having the recovery be able to recover from that appropriately. So blood flow is the it's really the last thing I'd be worrying about, except that it's nice to get a pump. Yeah. That's a function of blood flow. But um yeah, but more volume is more blood flow, but that's the blood flow per se isn't the isn't the key feature there. All right. Let's move back to these. Like I said, uh, I, I showed you um, Stephen's question, uh, and I'm going to put up a different one. But just to reiterate what Stephen had said, he said, my experience is similar to a few comments above. Low volume training made me strong, but it beat me up physically and mentally. And then it related, and it was actually Bad Coyote posted this one as well. He said, um, when I tried the hit approach to training lower volume, I gained the most strength ever. However, this did not translate to muscle growth in my appearance. When I stretched, when I switched to volume, the change was there. So I'm just seeing a few handful of people that are saying, hey, uh, lower mm -hmm. volume was an issue for me for one reason or another. Either I didn't grow or in the case of Steven, he said that he got really beat up by it. How would you reply to that? Actually, I just got a question like this on my discussion board, too, from someone okay. um, who is doing fortitude training. And the, there's several things. I'm trying to remember all things I, I responded to. But um, one, you have to have the your nutrition in place, right? So if um, one thing that some people can do, and there's you're, – you're welcome, bad coyote. <laughs> um, there's, it's a bad coyote. Yes, yeah, bad coyote. <laughs> <laughs> bad guy um, is nutrition has to be there regardless, right? To, to support your gains. So, and yeah. as I just mentioned, some people are going to do better with lower volume, better with higher volume. Yeah. But if you're getting stronger, you're not, you're not increasing your body weight along the way and you're going to get body fat no matter what. And how the P ratio that everyone has is going to be a function of lots of different things. So that ha that has to go hand in hand. Um, some people, I just sort of found that like, especially if you're this is why this Dante has people do cardio in the morning. One of the things he's just sort of found empirically, if you're doing DC training and you're sitting around at the desk, you got to have some, some extra movement in there. It yeah. allows you to eat more food. Um, and you're balancing out that to some degree with, with, with exercise. So your need is higher or your energy expenditure is higher. In this case, it's sort of formal. He's just doing low, low intensity walking and that sort of stuff, but it allows you to get more food in. So if you're not, if you're not, 
if everything else is in place, let's say you take, here's the question I would like to see, see asked is like, so I, I did, I was under two circumstances. One I did for six months or a year, I trained with a lower volume approach and I got really strong and I made sure that I gained a half a pound or one pound every week for 12 weeks. And the other one, as I did the same thing, except I trained with higher volume and I made sure I gained a half a pound to one pound every week for six weeks. Yeah. And then let's say that's 10 pounds under both circumstances. Then what happens to your, uh, your muscle mass? And, and let's say you do that. Let's take this, like this, take this one. And like, so someone, someone makes sure that they put on a pound a month every month for two years. And right. in one scenario, um, they go, they're training with a, a higher intensity approach and they go from 200, one twin goes from 225 to 405 on squats for sets of eight to 10, whatever. It's just crazy growth. Let's, let's make it 315, 225 to 315. So it's not too out of control. And the other guy, he never goes really high. And when you take them both back and you test them with like a set of 10, you know, the, the guy who trained higher intensity is now doing, he's gained 24 pounds. And the other guy has, has gained 24 pounds. And the guy who's trained high intensity is squatting 315 for 10 to 12 reps. And the guy who gained 24 pounds, he can only squat 275. Yeah. For 10 to 12 reps. Some of that is going to be, those are both bodybuilding rep ranges, right? right? So it's not going to be like, well, one guy just did a bunch of one RM. So he got stronger. He was training for powerlifting. We're talking about just training in, you know, six, 10, eight, 12 rep ranges. Another person did a lot more volume. Um, so that sort of reason I phrased it that way is that I think the, the theme here is that people are getting stronger with one type of training, but they're not seeing more, more gains in muscle size. Right. The question is how long have they done that for? And then also what, like you, you are going to have more volume. I mean, sorry, more, more glycogen. And thus you're going to have, you're going to notice that when you're eating more food and perhaps storing more glycogen, because if you're depleting the glycogen or reducing it to a greater extent with the higher volume, you're going to have a gly glycogen compensation or super compensation effect. So that's something you can just notice. And the other thing is also, and no one, no one mentioned this, but um, you're going to get a better pump. You're going to see this pump. So your perception of what's going on, is going to be different when you're constantly, you're in there doing 25, 30 sets and you're getting a pump. Yeah. So more, more overall, only, just kind of like inflamed muscle. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So over the, the long haul, you compare those two to your scenarios. I'm going to, I'm going to bet if they, both of them ensured that one pound gain and the one guy has got, you know, 50% greater strength gains. For, or performance gains, that's called them, and, and the 10 to 12 rep range on squats and that carry over all of his exercises, I'm going to bank on that guy having more muscle mass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would too. Yeah. If and I even can if say... Training, like 15 reps to higher, it's like all high... 12, 10 to 12 is not that far. Like they're, they're overlapping very close. One person's just doing more volume. Yeah. So, so, so that's the question. Sorry, I'm interrupting you, but that's the question. So for those guys who are seeing more strength and not seeing the size... How accurate was their assessment of size? Was it coming just perceptually? Was it coming mm. for some glycogen going on? And maybe it's a function of not eating enough. And how long did they carry that out for? Um, so that's that. I could go on and on. I, I, have like, I, I, could, I could talk about this for an hour straight probably. But I'll, I'll stop there, part one. What were you going to yeah. say, Scott? No, I thought yeah, that was – I, I knew yeah. knowing you for years now, I, I was excited to ask yeah. you about that. Um, I just wanted to share yeah. my personal experience and then – experience I've yeah. seen working with people and then also just hanging out with you 
uh, every other week uh, for the last five to seven years, however long it's been. And, and just the thoughts I've picked up about training along the way, you know, years and years back, I tried DC training, very, very low volume, very high intensity um, and, and you know, higher frequency than especially what I was doing before. So I got hurt really quick. I, I, I got hurt really quick and mm -hmm. I wrote it off. I said, this doesn't work for me. And guess what? It didn't work for me. And had I actually talked to Dante at the time about doing DC training, he probably would have told me not to do it, you know, because he's always said, too, yeah. that DC training is something for a more advanced person. Now, fast mm -hmm. forward a number of years, I did a lot of volume for a long time. And I'm talking excessive volume, you know, pushing it to the absolute limits, um, yeah. you know, three hour back days and three hour leg days it, with the lots of sets. Me. Yeah, lots of sets, yeah. lots of sets. And um, eventually coming back to high intensity, I got to the point where my best gains and strength were at uh, one day on, two days off, repeat. So basically mm -hmm. training every body part once every nine days, absolute strongest in my mid 40s, less super supplements than ever. And literally I was at my biggest. Now it was, mm -hmm. so I just, I want to say too that just because something might not work for you now, it might just mean that you're not in the right place for it. It doesn't mean that down the road, because mm -hmm. I think sometimes we say, okay, I'm a guy, you know, we look at these charts, we look at these graphs and we say, okay, this is a guy that does better with low volume. This is a guy that does better with high volume. This is a guy that does better with high volume right now, you know, down the road, mm -hmm. that may be different. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to throw that out there to everybody who was concerned. I'm with you. If right now it doesn't make sense for you to do a low volume pr program, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of hit style training, but I'm an advocate for people that can actually make the most out of it. With all the top set back off set that has been so popular over the past few years, thank you to Jordan Peters and guys like him. I've known a lot of younger guys that are getting into that. Uh, and, and when they come to work with me, the first thing I do when I'm looking at their training, if they say they do training like that, I want to see video. I want to see, well, how intense is that top set? Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of times they're not, they would do better with volume. I can see right out the gate because I can tell mm -hmm. you're not getting nearly what you, what you need out of such little volume, you know, per, per workout that adding more volume in would make up for that. So just remember, I guess my point, my main point is that even though it might not be for you today, it doesn't mean it might not be uh, something that benefits you down the road. And one more thing for me, it wasn't something that I switched, uh, flipped a switch overnight. It came to me naturally. It came to me over a slow period of time. And the way I discovered it was having hurt my shoulder, um, it just repetitive use, bicep tendon issues. I discovered that if I did two exercises for my chest, uh, I could get away with that and my shoulder wouldn't bother me. But if I did four by that third exercise, I was feeling it. So I said, well, hey, why don't I why don't I train chest twice a week and do half the volume on one day, half the volume on the other? I did that and I got away with not irritating the shoulder any further. And guess what? My chest grew and I was in a deficit at the time. I came out of a contest prep with people saying, hey, you know, your chest is one of your better body parts. And I never thought it was mm -hmm. before that. And it wasn't. So it, it, and from there, I said, OK, well, I already know how to how to split legs up. You know, I'll do a hamstring focus day, a quad focus day. So back for me was the big challenge. How do I split my back day up mentally more than anything else? And, mm -hmm. and it, it, over a course of about two years, I eventually progressed to the point where it made total sense 
to get really intense with fewer sets, but then do it more often. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's all I got to say on that. No, no, you're, that's, those are awesome, awesome um, thoughts. Context is so important. That's where this NS study was really, really nice in that they sort of brought everyone back to the same level. Um, they had sort of a, a washout phase, and then they sort of had a two-week familiarization phase, and they moved people towards where they were going to have to train to try to put them all on equal footing. That's, that's what happens. I mean, that was what one of the things that you know, Mike Mentzer often got so criticized for is that he was – he would take people or find people like, oh, that's a guy I want to get with because the guy's doing like 59 sets, you know, for yeah. his chest. Like, if I just take him and bring him back down, you know, he's got so much, he's going to have an overreaching phenomenon and he's just been doing way too much. If he can survive that, that's the thing. If he can survive yeah. that, look as good as he does, then I think if I te- bring him back down and just let him get stronger, et cetera, et cetera, that he's going to grow. So he was, a lot of the success was not just the nature of his program per se, but that he was picking the right people. Yeah. And pulling them from an overreaching, overtraining scenario, basically. Yeah. Which I think I was in that scenario myself. Mm -hmm. So it it made sense. And then even the guys that I've had great success with doing higher or uh, higher frequency, lower volume, we've switched back at times. Uh, Nick Ficolo, who is literally one point away from having turned pro this past year. He's really close. You know, of course, we can always make improvements and when we went into his off season, we've done a progressive overload um, with, with a higher frequency, lower volume for the past two, three years, it's worked fantastic. But once he went into his off season, we immediately went back to uh, like a one body part per day split. And guess what? Because he had done the other thing for so long. Now he's progressed really well with this. He did that for uh, probably, I think 16 weeks and eight, 10, mm-hmm. between 10 to 16 weeks and now we're switching back to to a more progressive plan again with higher frequency mm-hmm. and that's the thing too with with all of these like all of these studies they're all doing this was another post the previous maybe post i put up on instagram is it was it didn't get as much um much feedback but i just took the clips i clipped out portions from the method sections of like a half a dozen studies they're all doing progressive overload hmm that's the most scientific principle of them all because they all do that regardless of how many sets whether they're doing reps in reserve all sets or one set to failure all sets to failure they're all employing some form of progressive overload where they're they're looking at if you got more reps than was fit in the range then we brought the weight up they're always they're doing that in all cases and i don't see i don't see a ton of people i mentioned this on a podcast i did a few days ago i don't see a ton of people you know posting like videos flipping through their logbook saying i've been watching this shit for you know 15 years or nine months or whatever that's the thing that fits that that's part of all of these regimes and 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 i wonder i mean i one of the things that i sort of got from doing dc training with people and with fortitude training too is that i some people really are attuned to progressive overload they really want to do that it really it really creates a lot of internal motivation you know beat the logbook make the logbook your bitch, all that good stuff. That's something that really drives people and other people not, um, yeah. not so much. You don't have to have that there every day. You can just, I've always, I've always said like an alternative to that is have certain exercises that you come back to every two or three weeks and just do a, it's in your rotation and just do like a single set to test your, your, your progress. So, you know, like okay, I'm getting better on squats, incline presses, weighted dips, blah, blah, blah. And I want to do better on this particular, this is my go-to exercise. Yeah. But the overload is in all of these regimes and every single one of them. And I don't see people, 
people were, you know, talking about doing all of their exercises with stretch medium hypertrophy type of approach, what have you. But in all those cases, it's, it's always progressive overload. Um, there are some studies where they've left it just the same. There's some interesting, interesting studies showing real good um, muscle growth that way. But for the most part, progressive overload is part of all of it. And one thing I wanted to say, too, about injuries, because that was the problem. Um, that does happen sometimes with DC training. I don't think it's a, a flaw of DC training, I think, um, per se. Uh, but it's something that I think has somewhat been worked out in fortitude training. Um, and the thing that maybe was getting some people with DC training that I made sure wasn't going to happen in fortitude training is that um, there's a sequence of, there's a set of three exercises that you rotate through in DC training. Like okay. All, basically. Everything. And you have to come back to those, right? And that's the focus. And if you're starting to get some some tweaks or aches and pains in those exercises, then so the mindset is like, I'm going to do them anyway. <laughs> I'm just going to do it. And that's not the smartest way to train. And in, uh, one of the things I found with fortitude training, this sounds kind of like an ad, but like it's just something that I've just consistently heard really from day one the program came out, is that people with lots of aches and pain seem to see those reduce with fortitude training. Yeah, and I think I think it's the the stretching which which Dante had, but just extreme stretches. I have alternative stretches, so you don't you don't go into a stretch where you're feeling like oh my god, this tendon feels like it's going to snap. Um, <laughs> you have another stretch, not that Dante would ever say that, right? Of course, but, but with extreme stretches were an issue where people were doing just like all sorts of crazy stuff. They were just going like beyond extra going into maniacal levels of like I got to try to do a dumbbell stretch with the two hundred pound oh, dumbbell. Oh god, just people hurting themselves and part of the program i put a put fail stays in there to do the other types of stretches and then also there's so much auto regulation of exercise so you do have the loading set exercise you come back to but you're free to change those if ever they don't feel like they're not working for you and all yeah. and the other exercise so i think i think there might be somewhat the stretching you know doesn't pan out in the research stretching prevents injuries um but i think you can train heavy and progressive which is what the main main principle of fortitude training but there's a lot of variability in there, a lot of variety, and you're also doing a lot of stretching. Um, and something about fortitude training seems to have remedied that. And, you know, some of it may just well be psychological. It's not that it's not that you can't do DC training without getting injured a lot, but um, maybe the fact that there's, it's a daily undulating periodization type of regime where you do have heavy training and then you do have lighter training as well and you rotate through those is somehow helpful. And that's a polar topic. But but the injuries can, can be avoided. Um, but you got to be smart. Dante himself says after the age of 35, you're doing DC training, you need to up your reps. Don't yeah. try to be do six set, you know, deadlifts from the floor, you know, when you're 48 years old. But when <laughs> I first tried DC, that's when I, I got hurt. I got hurt frequently. And that's why I finally just threw it away and said, this isn't for me, yeah. which it really wasn't at the time. But mm. coming to it later, um, I felt that because I was work, I, I using perfect control in all my work, like, you know what I mean? Like, Making, I never lifted a weight. To me, progression didn't mean putting another five pounds on, picking up a five-pound heavier dumbbell. It meant getting better reps. You know, the, my my progression, I measured it in very minuscule, very strict ways. You know, maybe I got say say I lifted the 120-pound dumbbells and I got 10. Well, now mm -hmm. that's time for me to go to the 125s, but. Instead, I would look at my video because I'd shoot video of it and I'd say, well, you know what? I could have been better controlled in the last two reps. So mm -hmm. instead of going up, why don't I shoot for using absolute perfect control 
in rep nine and rep 10. And if I can do that, if I can absolutely perfectly own a weight, then the likelihood of me getting hurt by going up five pounds from that is going to be, you know, very low. So I think that was a big help for me. And then not having the repetitive wear and tear. I remember I interviewed, um, oh, uh, Nick Walker, uh, and, and I think it was right before or right at, I think it was right before he turned pro. And he talked mm-hmm. about going to um, a, a, a higher frequency, lower volume approach, progressive overload. And a lot of people were saying, well, you know, he's going to get hurt doing this. And he said, well, actually, I feel a lot better. He said, my joints mm-hmm. feel a lot better. My, you know, my tendons don't ache. Uh, and, and I found the same thing with high, high volume. <laughs> I got a lot of repetitive use injuries that just added up, added up over time versus progression. I, I did get hurt once, but I mean, it, it, it was far less often than, than it had been previously and very few aches and pains. My joints never hurt doing it. Mm-hmm. One of the things I actually logbook, I like the idea of progressing in terms of the quality of the reps. Yeah. And one of the things I've done in my logbook almost as long as 20 years, as long as I can remember, because I have always had the tendency, I get pretty amped up and I like to just like fire into a set. And sometimes I like my tendency in the past was just blast with the reps really fast. I'm like, I get so, especially on exercises and I just like rip into a set, you know? Yeah. And then at the end, I just want to get more reps and my form would tend to go to shit, you know? Okay. Um, been much better at that now in the last 15, 20 years. Um, and never really had a situation like, oh, that was what caused me an injury. To be honest, right. I've had injuries that have always been like weird things. I mostly I don't notice, like with my quad tears. I just I never like a little pop like during a stretch or whatever. It wasn't like, you know, that was obvious because you were being sloppy with your form. Or you right. Much but uh, the thing I would do, let's say I did like, um, I did twelve reps. Let's say I did twelve reps and then I and I failed attempting the thirteenth. Mm-hmm. But when I did, I'm honest with myself and I'm always like, I'm actually overly honest with myself. What I would write if the last two reps weren't perfect form and what I consider in terms of range of motion, or maybe I threw some extra body, body English in there, whatever, I would write 10 plus two plus zero. Okay. Yeah. That's just my, you can use any convention you want, but that means I did 10 good reps. I tried two more, you know, but I'm being honest with myself. Those were, those were reps, but they weren't good. And then, the, and I failed at the other one. So what that would mean then is that if I could come back and do 11, not that I want to do like add crappy reps to the end of my set, but I'm always, I know it's not always that way. Sometimes I just write 12 or 13 or 14 or eight or whatever. But if I do have crappy reps like that, I add that in. So for me, an improvement would be 11 plus zero, yeah. you know, because I got 11 good reps. Right. Um, but I also note that too, just to, to catch myself, it's like, okay, you're getting sloppy on this exercise. You keep yeah. on doing you keep on adding in these crappy reps because you're trying to beat the logbook, um, you know, no matter what, or you just, you're just, you're, you're training a little bit out of control. So catch yourself like, okay, you know, a little, it's a little slap on the wrist when I write those. I don't like to write those in my logbook, but it's a little slap on the wrist for myself. Yeah. It also tells me um, that it can be indicative that, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing lots more sloppy reps for some reason because I'm trying to beat the previous numbers, but I'm not really able to, I'm not able to get more total reps unless I do crappy ones at the end. And it also tells me, it's like, okay, you know, what am I, like I can look at the global picture, but it's like, that wasn't just a set of 10. That was a set of 10 plus two forced reps. Right. Then a, that I didn't get essentially kind of like, like a forced rep. 
So it's like, make note of that, Scott. So sometimes what I do, like I auto-regulate my volume the way, just like before you training, but I sort of doing it more intuitively now. So there will be sometimes when I just don't do certain exercises, like I put up a back workout two right. days ago. And there's some of those exercises, like I would not, I would not do, um, like if I did a, a drop set, I might do only a two stage drop set, or I would, I would not do like one of the isolation exercises. I just wouldn't do it. Okay. And so if I go and I see like, you know, the previous workout, like uh, everything's like 10 plus two and 11 plus three, like, I'm just like adding all these sloppy. I like, okay, it's, it's a different set when you're getting where I'm getting to where I have to try in order to get another rep, I'm having to cheat it. Yeah, it like, is. That's, that's a high, that's a poor return, potentially a poor return on investment. Yeah. That's a high stimulus, but that also is an inroad to recovery. What they're kind of calling fatigue now, I hate to use that word, but that's a more fatiguing in terms of in terms of what it's doing to my recovery thereafter than just a regular rep. Yeah. So if I do four exercises, then all of them have like cheat reps on the end. That's different than doing four exercises where I'm doing clean. And then when I don't get a good one, that's it. Um, so that's a different type of that's those, those are extra extra. It's like doing drop sets. You can't compare a drop set versus straight this is the other point i think it's probably worth making now because i'm kind of talking about is that exercise in that in that workout that i posted let's remember what i did i did a dc style rest pause set with lat pull downs okay um unfortunately they cut it off i had the whole thing on there but it cuts you off after a minute so i had because the sets take like four four minutes yeah so i did the i did that and i did a static hold at the end and then i did um um uh row stop deads which is my uh, I saw that video. I did. Yeah. yeah. That's a great. That's, I wish more people would do that exercise. It's oh, so it's brutal, man. It really is. You know, we did it right way back when. Because um, you sent me that video that you found the other yeah. the other week. Yeah. Um, and then I did. What else did I do after that? Um, I did a set of stretchers. And oh, I did some shrugs because because of my hips. I'm not supposed to be picking up heavy weights. So I'm doing the row stop dead. So I'm, I'm uh, limited to like two and a quarter. I can go up this week, I think. So I did like a, a rest pause set of deads, um, and then I did then I did biceps uh, a rest pause set. So and, and with a with a static too at the end. I can't remember quite. I have to look at my book. But if you look at the research literature, and this doesn't apply. We've been talking about leg training so far. But if you look at the research literature, that the, that rest pause set for the pull downs and that drop set, which was which was um, uh, a triple drop set, so three stages total. How do you count that set wise? First of all, those aren't straight sets. So if you're doing intensification techniques, like any type of cluster set, a muscle round, a rest pause set, someone asked me a question about myo reps. How do you compare myo? What's the effect of hypertrophy on myo reps versus this and the other? It's like it hasn't been compared. It's going to depend on the person. How, how many sets is a triple drop set? Yeah. Because I went and you didn't see those other ones, but I dropped down like 20 pounds and I think I got like, three or four and then two or three okay. and those were all quote unquote effective reps but those weren't sets those weren't same as straight sets the total work done was paltry if i went and rested i could have gotten maybe 10 reps instead of three right so how do you count that and people are wanting to then i get questions all the time like there's because they're trying to figure out a, a volume prescription based on these studies so it's like, well, if I'm going to do 52 sets, like does my triple drop set count for one set or three sets, right? Or, or, does, it, or does it even count for five sets for an individual? Hmm. Because 
when they go to failure and they're doing those really, really difficult grinder reps at the end that, that really dip deeply into their ability to recover, maybe doing a triple drop set has a greater effect on their recoverability than doing five sets with two reps in reserve, right? They get a little bit of effectiveness out of those last couple reps in each of those sets. So they do five times, they get 10 effective reps, so to speak. They get some effective time under tension, what we're calling it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really, it doesn't rip into their recovery. They're like, ah, this is no big thing. I got some good stuff in there. I've got a nice pump that feels good. I'm good to go. As opposed to they do the, the triple drop set and they feel like their brain's going to explode at the very end because they're not only are they going to failure, they're just zero reps in reserve. They're actually having a failure rep where they can't do anything and they're struggling with it for a second or two. Yeah. So they're adding up like those really, really tough grinders. It's like, so how do you compare that? That was, that was three sets, but you only did 18 reps. You know, it was one drop set for 18 reps, but like the last, you had eight of them were really effective. Yeah. Right. Versus 10 effective reps, but much less difficult over five sets. So was it three sets, five sets, one set, Versus five sets, like, so you run it, uh, if you're trying to, the, the bottom line from all that is like taking studies where they're doing straight sets and then trying to take that information and, and bring it over and, and directly apply it in some mathematically equivalent way is going to be a very hard algorithm to figure out, especially because we've got so much variability amongst individuals. And then we have your particular ability to recover from those high effort sets and how much effort you're willing to put in. Yeah. Are you willing to go until someone put a gun to your head? You couldn't get another rep. Is that how hard you train? Like where people look at you in the gym, like this guy, his wife must he must have just caught his wife in bed with some other guy or something. <laughs> What's wrong with this dude, right? He is angry. Yeah. He is pissed. He's motivated. And some people, you know, they're they're just they're having a like hold on just a sec. They put their cell phone down. They do their call right. and they pick up. You know, there's no big deal. So. Anyway, the question, I, I just continue to get it. Um, some people are like, well, why would they ask that question? But I literally get that question all the time. How do I count sets on muscle rounds compared to straight sets? And you have to, auto, the overarching feature here is that you have to auto-regulate for yourself. And that's when it comes to um, heavy training too. Like if you're doing a, a, a DC style thing or you're doing, if you've got someone who's got great recovery ability, Dante would have them do more. Sure. If someone handle it, he'd have them do more. Yeah. That's what I would do with someone. Um, like one thing that happened with DC training is like the standard way for the two-way split was do two straight sets for squats and then do a widowmaker. Right. right. So a heavy set and then a, and a, a back offset. Typically, the, the heavy set back offset is actually Dante's the one who made that. You know, I think pretty popular. People forget that, but that's a standard and that's a standard for 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 rows. So rack deads, bent of rows, that kind of stuff, and for for doing compound quad exercises like squats, like presses, et cetera. But so you do two heavy sets and then do a Widowmaker for DC training. And what happened along the way is some people who train really hard were like, I can't recover from that. It's hmm. just too much. So they started doing that. And these are people who are just training beastly hard. And then everyone's like, well, that's just the way to do it. And I'm like, right. actually, the way Dante first had it is you do two sets and then you do it. So you're doing a total of three sets for squats. But um, and so people just started doing one and doing less. And then, so they weren't, they don't argue auto-regulating. So you need to auto-regulate your heavy, heavy training too. And you need to auto-regulate around aches and pains and injuries. People are having like, they go in and, you know, they, they, they bust their knees squatting something like that. Well, that's just, that sucks. You know, that's just a bummer. Yeah. Um, that would be from trying to train too hard or what have you. Like 
they're just freak accidents sometimes, but, um, but it's also, you have to be smart, um, with picking your exercises. So if like, if rack, if deadlifts off the floor is something like, Hey, you gotta do them, you know, they're DNA changers. My favorite name for, for, for deadlifts, right? <laughs> someone good at those like over time, uh-huh. it is it transforms someone's physique. If they, if you get someone who's really strong on deads, it's totally, totally visible. The traps will be just crazy giant. But if you keep on doing those and they feel awkward the entire time, you know, and you're in your, when you're getting close to a, a failure rep on a deadlift, um, and you're starting to bow your back and everything's getting wonky and you're just, you just, that's not the right exercise for you. You got to auto regulate away from that. You pick the ones that work. That's another question I got just on that Instagram was what are the right exercises? Is it, it was about the row stop deads. Is that an exercise for DC training? I said, it could be, or couldn't be. I think that's an exercise that everyone could probably benefit from because it's, it's different, um, than, uh, than, than any other back exercise. It's just, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful, and it doesn't include stretch media and hypertrophy, but I tell you what, do that. How sore was your back after you did that, that one time? Oh, brutally, brutally. I, I was trying to find the video a minute ago. I, I don't see it offhand. I, I saw the video yeah. of you, but I don't see the row stop deads, but, and I remember I was already kind of smoked and it was humbling because I could not use that much weight on that movement. <laughs> you can't, you can't. So, um, Anyway, what other, do we have any more questions we need to get to? We're or, about we 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 had a couple few things that were kind of getting off topic and stuff, but honestly, we were about out of time here. We're about ready to wrap this thing up. So I appreciate everybody for tuning in, and um, I'm going to try to go back get some timestamps in this later for anybody watching live that wants to revisit. Of course, check out the book. Be your own bodybuilding coach. Go to byobcoach.com. Reach out to Scott over there uh, as well for consultations. And uh, go to uh, Amazon to get the hardcover, or you're going to send me a link where you can just buy it directly. Don't pay attention to the website you're buying it from. It apparently the uh, the description and stuff is all messed up, but you will get the book and you'll get it without having to go through Amazon and all that. Um, it's cheaper, yeah, and it's cheaper. Awesome, save five bucks plus uh, 15. fifteen. Okay, nice. That's a heck of a deal then. And go over yeah. to uh, truenutrition.com, guys, and use our code THINK. You can get everything from uh, micronized uh, uh, creatine monohydrate to you know, the, the latest cutting edge in carbohydrate technologies like uh, cluster dextrin. You get the real pure thing. You're not paying the price of cluster dextrin only to get 15 grams of cluster dextrin per scoop with 10 grams of, of uh, sugar in it. You can actually get the legit... 25 grams per scoop there and if you want to add sugar into it you can do that later but do it for the cost of sugar that's what bothers me as i see so many products now mm-hmm. that are claiming they're highly branched cyclic dextrin when you flip it over it contains 10 or 15 grams and then it contains mm-hmm. 10 or 15 grams of dextrose that's good i like the combination but don't charge me for a highly branched cyclic dextrin scoop if you're only giving me a half a scoop that's a whole other topic. Yeah. Use our code THINK over there. And, of course, supplementsource.ca for Canadians. Reach out to me, McNallyDiets at gmail.com. And, uh, of course, fortitudetraining.net. You can reach out to Scott there as well. And you can hit Scott up for consultations. We appreciate everybody on the live feed. You guys are freaking awesome. We do this every other week. So tune back, not this next Sunday, but the Sunday after that. And we'll be here to hang with you and answer questions. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in live. See you, Scott. Peace. All right. Yeah, we went for like...